Well, let's come to the Lord in prayer as we come to his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. It teaches us, it instructs us in the way we should go. And we pray that as we think upon it together, you might encourage us and enable us to serve you better. For Jesus' sake. Amen. We're continuing our study of the life and the ministry of Elisha the prophet this morning. And we've now come to this text of the latter part of chapter 6. Having seen Elisha face all kinds of situations in recent weeks, dealing with a Syrian army commander with leprosy, and then an axe head at the bottom of the river, this next event could well be described as another unexpected one, although in a different kind of category again. Now it's my guess that it's highly unlikely that any of you have known the experience of waking up to the side of an enemy army surrounding you and your house. So on the one hand, you might readily relate to Elisha's servant Panic in the crisis when he cried out, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And not so easily relate to Elisha's cool and calm response. Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You might also wonder even more at Elisha's prayer that his servant's eyes would be open to see what he could see. Not just the advancing enemies, but the presence of protecting angelic armies. Either way, that would certainly have been a sight to behold and something impressive to have as your Facebook status. Just standing at my front door, counting the angels. It's not everyone who gets to have a status like that, and not everyone who gets to see what Elisha saw, both physical and spiritual realities. So let's try to get our minds around the text by thinking about these three main points and clothes with some application that hopefully will bring this home to us. First, let's note from the text of verses 8 to 14 the all-pervasive presence of the Lord. Rather than the spotlight falling upon Elisha in this event, it's the greatness of the Lord's knowledge, power and sovereignty that dominate the story. How do we know that? Well, of all the major characters in the story, not one of them, apart from Elisha, is mentioned by name. Neither of the kings, not even Elisha's servant. One commentator says here that this should prompt readers to focus on the Lord as the key player in this unfolding drama. So let's do that and see what we can learn about him. For a start, we see something here about his omniscience. God knew what the Syrian king was planning to do and revealed it to Elisha, who in turn told the Israelite king beforehand. It was, as the Syrian king was told, Elisha even tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. It took intelligence experts more than 3,000 years after this to be able to bug a room, something God mastered way before. Nothing was hidden from him. And just as the Syrian king foolishly thought that he could send troops to take Elisha captive, so we also foolishly think that we can hide things from God. He knows all our secret thoughts. 
let alone our not-so-secret words and deeds. Also, we learn here something about God's omnipotence. The unfolding story shows us that he not only knew what was happening, but that he also had the power to deal with what was happening. It was no big deal for God to strike the whole army of soldiers blind in response to Elisha's prayer, proving the truth of a few verses from Psalm 33 which tell us, The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. Then note also that we learn something here about God's protection. Though surrounded as they were by this sizable enemy army, Elisha's servant had slept peacefully all night, all the time unaware of the hostile forces surrounding him. And though he awoke and saw reason to panic, he was no less protected then than when he didn't know he was in danger. Now your response to that may be this, well that's great, but what about reality? What about when God's people go through horrible trials and torture and even face death? Where's God's protection then? Well there's a clue in a minor detail of the text that could easily be overlooked. Did you notice where all this happened? Elisha was in Dothan. It has to be more than a coincidence that Dothan is a place mentioned only one other time in the Bible. Story is found in Genesis 37. Dothan was the place where Joseph found his brothers after his father had sent him to find out how they were doing. Joseph, who years later could say to his brothers, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. Even though Joseph saw no angels surrounding him, and though he went through years of despair, even still, God was sovereignly directing all of his circumstances. And even though you or I may never get a vision of God's angels surrounding us, that doesn't negate their presence. And surely the story of Joseph reminds us that even if you spend years in a dungeon, seemingly forgotten, even then God hasn't abandoned you. Because difficult circumstances are no indicator of God's absence, just as happier circumstances are no proof of God's presence. And if you're able to grasp that God is in control of all your trials and all your circumstances and trust him regardless of the nature of your circumstances, then you'll be well on the way to taking some big steps toward maturity. Second, let's note from the text of verses 15 to 17 the all-important power of prayer. There's an obvious contrast between the panic showed by Elisha's servant compared to the peace displayed by Elisha. And while it's quite possible that you could put the cause of those differences down to temperament, to age, or even to maturity, the text tells us that the whole story unfolded around Elisha's prayer in verse 17. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes, that he may see. A prayer that was quickly answered, leading us to these two observations. For a start, Elisha's prayer opened the servant's eyes to spiritual realities. Most of us determine reality by our physical senses. If we can see, hear, feel, smell or taste it, it must be real. I'm sure that for Elisha's servant, 
reality was thousands of soldiers mounted on powerful war horses who could wipe out the whole town before nightfall. But for Elisha, reality was the even greater and more powerful army of angels surrounding both him and his servant. And so Elisha's prayer that his servant might see what was invisible to his physical eyes led the servant to see what was ultimate reality, superseding what he saw with his physical eyes. The Apostle Paul knew something of this. Though he endured terrible persecution for the sake of Jesus, he could say that this was but a momentary light affliction that wasn't the end game compared with the eternal glory that awaited him. He also wrote that our struggle in this life is not against flesh and blood, and he wrote those very words while chained to a very real Roman guard in a very real Roman prison. Then we can also note that Elisha's prayer made possible what was impossible. Opening the servant's eyes to see the angels, closing and later reopening the soldier's eyes were humanly impossible things to do. So Elisha's prayer here was not that his servant might be enabled to do what he already could do, or that he might be able to put into practice what he should do. Rather, his prayer was that God would do what he could do that the servant could not, something humanly impossible. In relation to this, a woman once approached the well-known English Bible teacher, G. Campbell Morgan, with these words, Dr. Morgan, do you think we should pray about little things or just about big things? He straightened up and in his formal British manner said, Madam, can you think of anything in your life that is big to God? It's a good reminder that although we can bring everything to him, to the one who spoke the universe into existence, nothing can ever be too difficult. Is there a point of reflection here for you? Although we would hear Jesus say to us, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, the flip side of that is that we need to keep in mind that we ought to be asking God often to do the impossible. When praying for the salvation of another, be reminded that we are not asking God to help them out just a bit. They're asking God to do the miraculous in making their blind eyes see. A reading from 2 Corinthians 4 reminds us that the truth of the gospel is veiled to some, that is, it is hidden and unclear, but that it is only veiled because the God of this world, God with a small g, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Every conversion, then, is a miracle of God opening blind eyes in order that anyone might come to him and be saved. And prayer, confident, trusting prayer, according to his will, plays a big part in that. And third, the text of verses 18 to 23 remind us of the all-sufficient nature of grace. There's such a wonderful picture created in these verses, bringing to mind that the image created in them serves as a wonderful illustration of Proverbs 25:21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. 
In Jesus' words in Matthew 5, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. See what lavish grace was poured out upon the enemy army. Led away blind by the hand, right into the capital city of Israel, right into the presence of Israel's king, who was keen on putting them all to death. And there, not only receiving back their sight, but also having a feast set before them, and then being released and sent home. What an amazing image of grace, and what a wonderful testimony they must have borne back to their king, who no longer sent his army out to invade Israel. If nothing else, this image created for us of the Syrian army feasting reminds us of the line of the psalm, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Something that God has done for us in Christ when we were his enemies and outside of his kingdom. So what then of this in relation to you and to me? How does this event in the life of Elisha apply? Let me suggest the following three ways. It applies in the way you view your circumstances. I like the story of the lighthouse that was being built off the rocky coast of a remote island in the Pacific. The people who lived there had never seen a lighthouse before. They watched the construction with great interest, looking forward to the day it would be tested. Finally, when the day came, they all gathered to watch the sights and listen to the sounds penetrating the heavy fog that had rolled in. After several hours, they slowly walked away in disgust. One of the project engineers proudly asked one of them what he thought of the operation. With a snort, he replied, The light shines, the bell rings, the horn blows, but the fog keeps on just the same. There's such a great contrast between the things that Elisha's servant saw and the things that Elisha saw though both of them were looking at the same thing. The servant saw that they were surrounded. Elisha saw that they were protected. What's your default perspective? It's not just a matter of being either an optimist or a pessimist. It's a matter of seeing things that are invisible. So when faced with temptation, do you see the visible temptation or the invisible? That opportunity to cry out to the one who has been tempted as we have and yet was without sin. When you face opposition, hatred or ridicule, do you see the visible sense of loss or do you see the invisible? The opportunity to strengthen your faith in the one from whom we can never be separated. When circumstances work against you, do you see the visible and slink back into despair or do you see the invisible, that opportunity to be conformed to the image of Christ. When overcome with the reality of your own lack of holiness, do you see the visible and wallow in your guilt? Or do you see the invisible and the opportunity, by grace, to repent, confess and know forgiveness? It is a matter of perspective. In the midst of the crisis, do you see the fog or the light? We have to be sure to keep on correcting our perspective through the lens of the invisible. Then, this event in the life of Elisha applies to you by helping you view again your Saviour's choice. 
The angels surrounding Elisha reminds us of Psalm 91's words, which were ultimately applied to Jesus. For God will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You can't help but notice all through the Gospels that angels accompanied Jesus wherever he went. They appeared to John the Baptist's father and to Mary and to Joseph. They sang at his birth in great numbers. They ministered to him in the desert. One strengthened him in the garden and they gave directions at his empty tomb. But also remember that Jesus, on trial for his life, testified to the religious authorities. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? Consider this contrast. Where Elisha prayed that his servant might see those angels surrounding him. Let's remember that Jesus could have done the same in order to protect his own skin and to silence his enemies, but didn't. Ask why he didn't, and the answer must be that it was not part of his plan to save himself and so fail to save his people. And then third, it applies in helping you reconsider your Saviour's promise. In his 17th year as a missionary in the darkest Africa, David Livingstone faced the greatest peril of his existence and wrote this in his journal. Evening. Felt much turmoil of spirit at the prospect of having all my plans for the welfare of this great region knocked on the head by savages tomorrow. But then I read that Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. There's an end of it. Should such a man as I flee? No, instead I shall take my observations for latitude and longitude tonight, though they may be my last. When faced with a crisis, do you count on the presence of God with a living, active faith like that? It was this kind of faith that enabled Moses to march into the presence of Pharaoh, David to face up to the giant called Goliath, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to enter into the fiery furnace, and Jesus to willingly embrace the cross and the wrath of God, and God's people to be able to face trials of every kind, and so prove the the reality of the Saviour's promise, I am with you to the very end of the age. For we neither live in this world alone, nor serve in this world alone, nor fight against any foe that can be seen or remains unseen and do that alone. Do you believe that? One of the greatest missionary stories comes to us about a man who became moderator of the Presbyterian Church of Victoria in the late 1800s and whose two great-granddaughters became honorary aunts to our children, one of whom still lives on this earth and has been a great encouragement and prayer supporter of mine for many years. That man is the Reverend John G. Payton, a trailblazing missionary in the islands of what was called then the New Hebrides, but is now called Vanuatu. Of all the stories told about Payton, this one perhaps is the most well known. It's told that one night he and his wife found themselves threatened 
by hostile natives who surrounded their mission headquarters. The Paytons thought for sure that the natives would burn down the headquarters and kill them both. And so they prayed throughout the night, asking God to protect them from harm. The next morning came, and with it the astonishing realisation that the men had retreated and that they and their house were safe, even untouched. They had no idea what had happened. So they prayed again, this time thanking the Lord for saving them. About a year later, the chief of the tribe they were living among became a believer. And so when one day he came to the house to speak with the Paytons, John asked him about the incident of that night of terror a year before. The chief told them that he and his men were too fearful to carry out their plan of attack, for they had seen an army of giant men in shining garments with drawn swords in their hands surrounding the mission house. With no other explanation possible that God had sent his angels to keep them from harm. Perhaps only in eternity we will know if that was so, and of other similar events in which the Lord has intervened. But we do know this. We know what it was that Elisha said that comforted his servant in a time of fear. Let's hear it again. He said, Those who are with us are more than those who are against us. We're never alone. That's what the prophet saw. And that's what God's word invites you to see again this morning. To see things unseen. Will you do that? Let's pray together. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for this wonderful incident in the life of Elisha and his servant. Where he prayed for his servant that he might see reality. And that reality included an army of angels surrounding them and so surrounding and keeping them, protecting them from the army of the Syrians. We give you thanks that our Lord Jesus promised that we would never be alone, that he would always be with us. And though our eyes are blind to spiritual realities, we cannot see you, nor can we see angels surrounding us. We thank you that we are in your care. We thank you that you have not abandoned us. We do this because we believe what your word says, that we walk not by sight, but by faith, putting our trust in you as the God of all power, all grace. So help us to renew our hope today, to renew our trust in the living God. And so may you prove once more, over and over, that you bless those whose trust is in you. We pray and ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.